Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we get into part two of what we call the thinking man's game, which is a reflection on an article that was in Harvard Business Review on Bill Walsh and the way that he managed his teams, I want to remind you to go to glazierclinics.com win to register for our sweepstakes, which will be awarded on the 12th of December, the five-year anniversary of the podcast. Again, that's a flight for two, hotel, rental car to any of the Glazier clinics across the country as well as a staff pass. Total value of that is $1,900. Go to glazierclinics.com slash win to register. Yesterday, we focused on the first half of the article and talked a lot about how Coach did things, how he looked at things. And one of the things that Coach always did was prepare for all contingencies. And so that leads us to the next question that was asked of him. Why is it important to prepare so many skills for so many contingencies? And he said this, Making judgments under severe stress is the most difficult thing there is. The more preparation you have prior to the conflict, the more you can do in a clinical situation. The better off you will be. For that reason, in practice, I want to make certain that we have accounted for every critical situation, including the desperate ones at the end of the game when we have only one chance to pull out a victory. Even in that circumstance, I want us to have to play prepared and rehearsed. Say it is the last 20 seconds of the game and we're losing. We have already practiced six plays that we can apply in that situation. That way, we know what to do and we can calmly execute the plays. We'll have no doubt in our minds. We will have more poise and we can concentrate without falling prey to desperation. I think we are in a time right now where planning for contingencies has a ton of value. We don't know when this pandemic is going to end. We don't know when or if losing players to COVID is going to go away, if there's going to be more or less restrictions, etc., etc. And the teams that we've talked to already in this offseason, learning what they did to become champions, learning what they did to excel on the field, A lot of them talked about being able to adjust quickly, about preparing their players to be able to step into a position that maybe they weren't the guy at the beginning of the week. And we see all kinds of situations popping up now where being able to plan plan ahead, being able to face that adversity, being prepared in those situations 
is of utmost importance. So I think that's a big one there. And, and Coach talks about how that applies certainly to all areas of the game. We've had some great podcasts here on all the different situations and handling those and how coaches practice those. Uh, I will put some links in the show notes to some of the playlists that we have in regard to those topics. So the next question is, can you recall a specific instance where this actually paid off for one of your teams? And Coach Wallace answered, in 1987, we were down 26-20 to against Cincinnati. We got the ball back on their 25-yard line with two seconds left in the game. It could have been a hopeless situation. We put three receivers to the left and Jerry Rice to the right. Joe Montana got the ball, looked left, pump faked, and then threw right where Rice was covered man-to-man in the end zone. It was a touchdown, and it won an important game for us, but it would not have happened if we had not been prepared. You need to have a plan even for the worst scenario. It doesn't mean that it will always work. It doesn't mean that you will always be successful, but you will always be prepared and at your best. But the same applies to virtually every situation at every point in the game. Say you are on defense and inside your own 25-yard line. The situation can vary, so there are a number of particulars you need to prepare for. You have third down in inches, third down in feet, third down in yards, inside the 15-yard line. All that changes, and inside the five, it changes again. Each situation is different, and for each, you might have 15 different game situations to practice. You have to allocate time for all of them. You have to practice plays, and you have to work with individuals. And then all of the separate situations have to be pulled together to give a continuity to the team's play. I really like this next question. So it's one of the most impressive attributes of your 49ers team was their ability to take what some people consider a disadvantage and use it to their advantage. Did you work on developing this skill? Coach Walsh replied, I can think of several cases where we consciously tried to work on the players to reverse what in football are usually crippling disadvantages. One was playing on the road. In football, the home field advantage is also dis- is often decisive. But we were able to bond together, play in enemy territory, and feed on the emotions of the situation without being intimidated by other teams or their fans. To accomplish that, I would condition the 49ers to adversity. We would talk about how it feels to fly into enemy territory. We would discuss what crosses your mind when you take the field. It allowed us to turn our status as outsiders into our advantage. When I talk with the team, I would use examples from the early days of World War II as illustrations of the desperate and heroic fights we could emulate. By talking about what could be a disadvantage, we turned our people on. We made it an advantage. The other example is the injury factor. Some teams come unraveled when a star player gets injured. With the 49ers, an injury often served to arouse the team to play harder. Again, my approach was to talk about it openly. I would make the point that reserve players always had to be prepared. And when they got the chance, they should actually improve on the performance of the injured player. Again, I used historical examples from warfare. For instance, in the Civil War, the best trained people, the front line, and even the generals were often the first to fall. Often it was the reserves who would achieve victory. So when our reserves took the field, they were conditioned to feel this way and they knew what was expected. 
they would feel much more positive about going into the game. I think Coach Walsh is touching on something there we often shy away from. When do we have those kinds of open and even vulnerable conversations with our players? Where we talk about the adverse conditions, when we talk about the disadvantages, when we talk about some of the things that they may have to face. I know for me, I always tried to keep things positive and, and reflect on positive things so I wouldn't go there in those situations. But looking at it, I do see the value in this approach, and obviously it worked very well for Coach Walsh. Here's the next question. In teaching skills to your players, how do you organize your thinking about the players you are trying to reach? Coach Walsh said, take a group of 10 players. The top two will be super motivated. Superstars will usually take care of themselves. Anybody can coach them. The next four, with the right motivation and direction, will learn to perform up to their potential. The next two will be marginal. With constant attention, they'll be able to accomplish something of value to the team. The last two will waste your time. They won't be with you for long. Our goal is to focus our organization and organizational detail and coaching on the middle six. They are the ones who need most need and benefit from your direction, monitoring, and counsel. Some good points there in, in where we put our focus. I agree. Sometimes you pay much, too much attention to that star player, worry about taking care of him, coaching him. And in all reality, they don't need much of that. Focusing on those marginal players and, and leveling them up is the most important part. And I see coaches all the time focusing on the guys who aren't getting it done. I know we want to save every player, but you got to think about time, energy, focus, where you're putting those things. I'm not saying that you don't find a way to uh, get those players in line, to get them to buy in, to get them where you need them to be. But you also have to make sure that you're leveling up that next group of players. So I think there's a, a balance there. I, I definitely think that's one I'd like to study and, and learn more about. The next question is this. How do you achieve a balance between group skills and discipline on the one hand and player in individuality on the other? And Coach Wall said, they go together in defining the two directions you need to pursue at the same time. First, develop within the organization and the players an appreciation for the role that each athlete plays on the team. You talk to each player and let each one know that at some point he will be in a position to win or lose a game. It may be one play in an entire career for a certain player or for many plays each game for a Joe Montana. But the point is that everyone's job is essential. Everyone has a specific role and specific responsibilities and each player has to be prepared both mentally and physically to the utmost to play that role. Second, you want to talk to each player and indicate the importance of everyone's participation in the process. That is important for everyone to express himself, to offer ideas, explanations, solutions, formulas. You want everyone to enter the flow of ideas, even the ideas that may seem extreme in their creativity. You're actually striving for two things at the same time. An organization where people understand the importance of their jobs and are committed to living within the confines of those jobs and taking direction. And an organization where people feel creative and adaptive and are willing to change their minds without feeling threatened. It's a tough combination to achieve, but it's also the ultimate in management. Boy, I think that captures quite a bit there. Taking care of those individuals, 
making sure they understand those their roles. But creating that situation we talked about before, we talked about yesterday, where everybody is sharing ideas. They're not afraid to share ideas because at, at the very least, their ideas are going to be heard and considered. I know in a lot of situations, someone might offer an idea, a player especially, and kind of be yelled down or demeaned uh, about speaking up. That's not your role. You know, I still think you need to create an environment where that's important. It seems more and more, I, I see these things on social media. I see tweets where the the individual stepping up the player, you know, is getting criticized and the, and the coach is being praised for stepping up and putting down that player who wants to express uh, themselves, wants to express maybe a need of the team. And, and I think you need to be open to those. You need to hear those. You can't knock ideas down and expect to have a culture that you're going to have that trust as well. I think all of that builds together. So some interesting ideas there from Coach Walsh. The follow-up to that asks for an example. So is there a situation with a player that exemplifies this balance between giving explicit direction and permitting individual creativity? Coach Walsh said, take Joe Montana, for example. He's a perfect combination of the two vital aspects that are necessary for developing greatness as a quarterback. The formula for success of the 49ers was a highly disciplined, very structured form of utilizing the forward pass. To make our system work, Joe had to master the disciplines to know which receiver to throw to, when, and why. The success of the team depended on Joe's ability to work within that framework. Consequently, the job of the coach was to use drills and repetition so that Joe developed almost automatic moves and decision-making ability. But there is the extra quality that it takes for a quarterback to become a world champion, or in Joe's case, the best ever. And that is an instinctive, spontaneous, natural response to situations that arise in games. Part of Joe's greatness was that 10% to 15% of the time his spontaneous instincts would break loose and make a phenomenal difference in the outcome of a game. It's the job of the coach to find the best of both sides. We have to be a very structured system of football, and we also wanted instinctive and spontaneous play. I think that goes back to something I said yesterday, and, and I'd always tell my players, you can't just be out there running the lines, right? We don't want these robots who say, oh, the line's drawn this way, I'm just going to run the line, because there's so many decisions that have to be made along that line. It's very dynamic, and we certainly... Don't show what happens when that line ends, when you do catch the ball, when you do get into the open field, and the players' instincts come into play there. Do we train those? I did some series uh, some time back about deliberate practice. I'll, I'll link those in the show notes, but we talked about specifically those things, working on the decision-making, working on some of that spontaneous play, and I think you have to consider how do you work that into your drills as well. We always drill everything that's going to happen as the diagrams are drawn, but what happens as the play breaks open, as things go down the field? There's a good question that goes along with that. So he's asked, how do you go about the job of coaching a player like Montana to develop that kind of balance? And coach says, early on, we had to encourage Joe to trust his spontaneous instincts. We were careful not to criticize him when he used his creative abilities and things did not work out. In practice, we worked with Joe repeatedly on specific plays. When he was placed in a game, we called only those plays because 
we knew that we should be he should be confident that he could execute them but we didn't jump him the minute he would break the pattern instead we nurtured him to use his instincts we had to allow him to be wrong on occasion and to live with it of course with different players the problem takes on a different look in the case of quarterback Steve Young it was almost the opposite we had to work with him to be disciplined enough to live within the strict framework of what we were doing. Steve is a great spontaneous athlete and terrific runner, but we found that we had to reduce the number of times he would use his instincts and increase his willingness to stay within the confines of the team concept. For example, we would be at a point in a game where he had designed where we had designed a special play to break the defense wide open and score a touchdown. In his early days, Steve might not have had the discipline to wait for that play to develop. Instead, he would see an opening and run with the ball for a five-yard gain. He would let his instincts and emotions affect his patience with the play and his confidence that the entire team could execute. Some great, great points there. Um, Certainly, I like this idea of developing players both within the framework and developing their instincts. I think in both cases, you know, you you got to find that balance. Again, you don't want to turn players into robots where the only answer is, well, that's that's how the play was drawn, right? You want to be able to ask them questions. What did you see? You want to be able to nurture that ability, as Coach says, to let them be trusting in their instincts, right? You're going to develop a, a better athlete, a better player within your system. The next question was, as a coach, how do you know what it takes to bring out the best in a young player's ability? And he said, unfortunately, there's nothing exact about it. Experience is really the only teacher. I was 47 years old when I became an NFL head coach. Typically, that job comes to people when they are between the ages of 35 and 40. I was in a subordinate role as an assistant coach for a longer period of time than most. So I was forced to analyze, evaluate, and learn to appreciate the roles that other people play more than I might have. In retrospect, I was lucky. The follow-up was, but if developing your players is an exact art, there are bound to be mistakes. How do you deal with them? And Coach Wall said again and again, in the development and selection of personnel, you have to account for miscalculation. In professional sports, the person who is best at dealing with personnel is the person who recognize, recognizes his or her errors and deals with them the quickest and most effectively. That could mean adopting a long-term approach or it could mean the release of a player. Taking our draft of John Taylor in 1986, John came to the 49ers as a receiver from Delaware State. He had a great physical talent, but not a lot of background in playing sophisticated football. We simply miscalculated how long it would take John to be ready to play in the NFL. Consequently, we were disappointed in him. John was not adapting well to the competition. He appeared confused and frustrated, and he had lost his enthusiasm. But instead of giving up on him, we took a longer-term, more patient approach. We waited an extra year to allow him to mature and grow into his level of competition and into the role we wanted him to play. Now he's an all-pro, and one of the great receivers in the game. The other side to that would be the decision I made with Thomas Hollywood Henderson. He was a very bright, articulate, charming person, 
but he also had an uncontrollable drug habit. I made a calculated choice that involved a high risk when we acquired him from Dallas that I could personally nurture and rehab and influence Thomas into once again becoming a great linebacker. It was a miscalculation on my part. I gave it every chance to work, but I finally had to decide that it simply was not going to. When you reach that point, you have to make a controlled and well-planned retreat. You regret the decision that you made, but you have to live with it, and you have to work yourself out of it. That is one important facet of good management, deciding on how to acknowledge your mistakes. Do you simply gloss over them? Do you blame someone else? Are you so insecure that your ego will not let you do anything but maintain that your original decision was correct? I could have kept Thomas Henderson on the team, but, but then the 49ers would not have become world champs. Or I could have had the public blaming Thomas or blaming an assistant coach. But none of those approaches would have helped the team. In this case, I did not want to publicly embarrass Thomas, but I did want to show the team that I was still in control and that drug abuse would not be tolerated. We simply had to move as smoothly as possible to release Thomas for any number of reasons, remove him from the picture. I made a mistake, acknowledged it, and decided what to do about it. And certainly, when we look at our teams, and, and a lot of us coach at the high school, small college level, whatever it might be, that this isn't necessarily something we deal with. We're not acquiring players like this, but we are recruiting people into our program, and ultimately, we want to have good people. We do want to have people we can influence and develop. Coach wanted to give a guy a chance, as he explained there. So I still think we have to have those points where we decide, is is this player going to help the team? Is he helping the culture? And sometimes you do have to make those changes and you do have to remove somebody if, if you can't bring them along. It's not an easy decision to make. And I know in today's world we want to keep as many young men in our program as we can, but we also don't want to do that to the detriment of the other young men in the program. So very tough thing and something I think you always have to consider uh, what's the long-term effect of that, both to the team and to the individual. The next question is, if the personnel issue is so overriding, do you have a methodology for the way you evaluate players? He says, we use a five-bracket ranking system to categorize people we are looking at. The first is a star player who cannot miss. The second is a player who will someday be a starter and play for a number of years. The third will make the team, and the fourth has an isolated specialty, covering kickoffs or fielding punts. The fifth is someone who will make the squad and help you by playing solidly in a backup role. You want as many superstars as you can get. The more stars, the better. But the difference between winning and losing is the bottom 25% of your people. Most coaches can deliver the top 75%, but the last 25% only blossoms in detail in the orchestration of skills in the way you prepare. So I, I think there's those of, the, of, of you who are listening who um, go through some type of system like this in evaluating players who you're going to recruit You're in, you know, at the college level. I think at the high school level, you're going to have those guys who come into your program, and you need to figure out where do they fit. How they are they going to develop in your program? Are they the star? Are they that role player? Are they somebody who's going to be on the squad and maybe just be a backup? You know, thinking about those things I think helps you develop where everybody fits, help you understand, and can provide some of that evaluation and feedback that's going to be effective for them. I mean, if everybody thinks they're going to be a star, that's just not the reality 
in a program. So how do you help them? But I think more than anything, I've seen a lot of coaches, and I know we used to do it, is categorize where our guys are in our culture, right? They're, that those, those guys who um, were helping make the team better. And, you know, I've described a number of things. I'll put in the show notes a link to uh, an episode I did called The Leadership Ladder. It was something that I picked up from uh, Greg Brandon, um, who's, who's still coaching, I think, at the FCS level now. He was at Bowling Green at the time and shared it in a clinic. And we actually used that as a, a level of evaluation where we wanted our players, that we had one of those true leaders, those influential guys at the top, and we knew we had some guys who were on the bottom of that ladder. So we looked at a way to be able to, to elevate everybody. So there's different ways you can look at your people, whether that's ex, you know people on the outside who you want to bring in uh, through recruiting or the guys that you have within your program and you know where they fit and how you need to develop either them in the culture or them physically um, within your team. The next question I think is great. You know, when we are looking at the recruiting side of things, when we're looking at how we build our team, and the question is, when you go into a draft, what are the particulars you are looking for in a player? And Coach Wall said, it's always a combination of factors that add up to the right person. It's his level of natural ability. It's his competitive instincts. It's also the history of the athlete, his ability to learn, retain, and apply what he has learned, and his ability to work under stress with other people. Then you have to be able to project those qualities into the slot or the role that the athlete would play for your team. And you have to do that over time, thinking about short, middle, and long term. For example, a player could come in and play a certain role in his first year, and then in his second year, that role could be developed or enhanced. After a number of years, that player might end up in a feature role and then revert back to the role in which he started as the wear and tear of the game begins to take its toll. So he's talking more about that guy at the tail end of his career where, you know, for us, we have guys for four years and and then we're looking at new guys. But I think as you get to the college level, especially higher college level, that transfer portal comes into play. So you need to figure out how do we work with guys now and I don't think that's necessarily different in the issues that a high school coach faces today. There's a lot of things that these kids can do that vie for their attention. And so if they don't feel a part of things, if they don't see the pathway in what they're doing, if they don't have a role that can continue to develop for them, they might go do something else, right? And ultimately, you do want to have those good guys in your program. So figuring out how you can fit these guys, play these guys, you know, look for ways where there are role players. I always said I wanted my depth chart to be more horizontal than it was vertical, meaning that, you know, I want to use guys and develop personnel groups around different skill sets, that it wasn't going to be all, you know, we're just 10 personnel and everybody fits in this role that, you know, we might be in 11 personnel, we might be in 12. This might be our short yardage group. And when this short yardage group in is in, maybe it's a different set of receivers because we need a different skill set in a certain area of the field, et cetera, et cetera. So it gave for us um, that ability to, as I said, create more of a horizontal jump chart. And, you know, when a guy sees that, man, I'm, I'm second right now, where in reality, you know, if we just did that one position and here's our, our base group, he might be four, five, six, and that's a demotivator, at least at this and doing it this way, guys can see there's an opportunity for me to work into this role sooner than later. So different things you can look at there, and I think some great points that Coach Walsh makes. There's two questions that dealt a little bit more 
with phasing out that that player, that guy who's reached the end of the career. So I'm going to skip over those. We're going to go to this next question that says, you recommend manipulating people rather than being honest. A, a, an interesting question here. And here's the answer. The easiest thing is to be truly honest and direct. In fact, it sounds just a great way to say you are being honest and direct. But in sensitive, hammer-like shots that are delivered in the name of honesty and openness, usually do the greatest damage to people. The damage ends up reverberating through the entire organization. Over time, people will lose the bonding factor they need for success. And over time, that directness will isolate you from the people with whom you work. The real task is to lead people through the troubled times when they are demoted or find themselves at the end of their playing days and to help them maintain as much of their self-esteem as possible. These are tasks that really define the job of the manager. A manager's job is not simply having a desk filled with family pictures and a wall covered by plaques for good behavior. It's developing the skills to understand and deal with people. I know one of the things that seems to get debated quite a bit, whether it's on social media or with coaches just talking in general, is is that idea of we're going to be brutally honest with you and you know we're going to coach you hard and I think that's exactly what Coach is talking about here, that you have to be tactical about it. You do have to be conscientious of emotionally how is it going to affect the player. So yes, you may have to demote somebody. Yes, you may have to point out where they're not doing things the right way. But you can you do it in a way that will help build them up rather than just break them down and walk away from the situation. So I think there always has to be tact and how you do things today because again ultimately you're responsible for that development of that person and if uh, making some tough decisions making some comments that are you know you want to provide the feedback and I'm not saying you don't I don't think you skirt that situation but I think also if it just breaks a person down now you have to build that that psyche back up and then you have to build the skills as well so you're setting yourself behind in coaching and you know you are, as Coach said, kind of fracturing the relationship there. The next question was, you've described a variety of tasks that the coach has to be sensitive to, including the ability to make tough decisions and the need to soften the edges when it comes to dealing with people. What has made your system so successful? Coach Walsh replies, the bottom line in professional sports is winning. Everything has to focus on that product winning football games. Other offshoots, the public relations, the merchandising, the high-sounding philosophical approach mean little compared with being successful on the playing field. But winning does not necessarily mean being a victor in every game. It's not winning every game at any cost. We have to remind ourselves that it's just not a single game that we are trying to win. It is a season and a series of seasons in which the team wins more games than it loses and each team member plays up to his potential. If you are continually developing your skills and refining your approach, then the winning will be the final result. But I've seen coaches who are simply too sentimental, who will allow themselves to be too maudlin about breaking up the old family. They're going to lose sight of the bottom line. And there's another kind who are severe, tough, and hard-hitting. But the sacrifice, the loyalty of the people around them in that situation, the people are always afraid that they're going to be the next ones to go. The coach Coaches rarely have sustained success. Somewhere in the middle are the coaches who know that the job is to win, who know that they must be decisive, that they must face people through their organizations, 
and at the same time, they are sensitive to the feelings, loyalties, and emotions that people have toward one another. If you don't have these feelings, I don't know how you can lead anyone. I've spent many sleepless nights trying to figure out how I was going to phase out certain players for whom I had a strong feeling, strong feelings, but that was my job. I wasn't hired to do anything but win. And ultimately, we are graded as coaches on our wins and losses. And winning obviously gives us the ability to continue to do our jobs. And sometimes it provides a bigger stage on which to do those jobs and, and the influence of more people. Um, but I think what that really boils down to is is taking care of the relationships. And I know we have coaches, when I ask them what's the winning edge, so many times it's focused on that relationship, the relationships within your program. And the episode tomorrow is going to be on player-driven culture. And a lot of what Mike Kuchar from XNO Labs has put together in that is about how you develop those relationships, coach to coach, coach to player, player to player, right? Developing all those things on your team. And, and ultimately, that's what your organization is about. And if you can have one where there's strong relationships, you're going to have a winning organization. So it was really good, as I said, to be able to get back to this article, which I had read years ago, and see how Coach Walsh, in some ways, you know, all of that has not been adopted by us. But today, probably more than ever, taking the approach that he had is something that can help us with all the things we have to deal with today. So I'm glad I was able to share that one with you. Uh, we have some great guests lined up here in the future, and uh, I look forward to uh, being able to bring you more of these podcasts. Again, please go to glazierclinics.com slash win to register for our sweepstakes, which is next week, December 12th. We'll be awarding that on the five-year anniversary of the podcast, and we certainly appreciate all of your support and loyalty over the years here and helping us create a podcast we can continue to bring to you and we're going to continue to grow this as we go and help coaches develop share ideas all the things that make the profession we're in good